Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Welcome to the first episode of the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to bring the way of thinking and the insights of the early church to guide us in our time. But before we even embark on this journey, we must begin by asking the question, is there value to reading the writings of the early church? To show you where the state of this conversation is at, let me start off with some comments I received on my website and its Facebook page regarding the writings of the early church. I will read them, and you listen. Then after I have finished them, I will begin to reflect on them. Here's a first comment. Quote, as a Sunday school teacher, we consistently look for new ways to teach the kids. Many times we take a teaching style or an entire lesson from someone else and add to it. The problem is not where the speech came from, but rather the lesson that it teaches. I have tried to create a lesson based on the church fathers, but I noticed that unless you have the willpower to try to understand it, it will make no sense. Seeking the church fathers is something you must do on your own. End quote. Here's a second comment. Quote, your issue seems to be that he, which was referring to a certain person that I will not name here, does not quote church fathers or content from the early church enough to your liking. It is not clear how this is harmful or why your barometer of what is orthodox enough is the one we should all follow. End quote. Here's a third comment which was a little bit more positive. Quote, God has given you a great platform. Use it to make early church fathers easily accessible to regular people. I still can't find a great app for that. Write more books, write curriculums, make podcasts, make it easier for people to understand because the average person will not go to theological school or read on their own. End quote. The last comment, quote, I wish we have the Church Fathers' books more available in our church bookstores and talk more about them in our churches. God bless. End quote. These are just some examples of what I have received. I reflected for a long time regarding many other misconceptions that people have regarding the writings of the early church, as exemplified in the church fathers. Some think that the church fathers require too much work, or in the words of the first commenter, willpower, to understand. But the reality is, all books of any meaning require work to understand. Think of the Bible and reading the prophecies of Isaiah, Hosea, or Zechariah. These require tremendous work to understand because of the interplay of the background elements of the law, that is the Torah, and the history of the Jews. If one does not have a clear understanding of both the Torah and the history of the Jews as described in the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible, the prophets are nearly incomprehensible, but it need not even be that complex. Take, for example, the book of Job. If people read it as a story, then it is extremely difficult to understand. 
because only the first two chapters and the last one are written as a story. The chapters in between are a poetic dialogue. If one reads it as a poem according to Hebrew poetic structure, then we unlock the meaning of that book. The writings of the Church Fathers operate under the same principles of reading. We must have a knowledge of the background. In the case of the Fathers, it is very depending on century and country. The structure of the text and the purpose and audience for which these writings were written. Some of their writings can easily be understood with little work, such as the writings of St. John Chrysostom, whose books and sermons are piercing to the core. The way he speaks and the observations he makes in his sermons are so touching and readily applicable that they might as well have been preached a few minutes ago. But other texts, such as the writings of St. Athanasius, St. Basil, St. Gregory the Theologian, and St. Gregory of Nyssa, require an acquainting with the background history and audiences for whom these church fathers wrote. It will take some work, but the result will be a much deeper spiritual life, a treasure trove of wisdom, and a fresh and exciting way of seeing God, the world, and everything in it, and each other. So with this, we have begun to answer the question of whether there is value reading the writings of the early church. But whether there is value, are the writings of the early church outdated? Well, consider this. Can the work of the Holy Spirit be outdated? If you are shocked by the question, it is actually a rephrasing of the assumptions behind the two questions of whether the writings of the early church are valuable and whether they are outdated. To put this into the correct frame, we must remember that these first several centuries of Christians are the ones who passed down the faith unto us. That faith is a journey on the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. That journey is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those early Christians. So if we truly acknowledge the divinity and work of the Holy Spirit, then we cannot ignore his work in all generations except our own. He has worked since the day he was sent to the church on Pentecost. This fact can help us come up with better answers for the questions at hand. Keeping this fact in mind can also help those who think that the writings of the early church must be sought out on an individual basis and not as a church. It is the role of the church to bear witness to the work of God, and that includes the work of the Holy Spirit, because if the same Spirit works in us, then we have to be able to recognize his work in those who came before us. This means that the writings of the early church must be communicated through the ministries of the church. To give an example, I belong to a church where my priest was very intentional in building everything on the spirituality and thinking of the early church. I was 16 when I first started to regularly attend the church where he serves as priest. I had never attended church regularly until that time. I had not finished reading the Bible one time through, and I knew very little. Yet I was surprised by his usage of early Christian writings. Their interpretations were present in all our Bible studies. Their words were present in all his sermons. Their lives were mentioned regularly as models of how to live a life imitating Christ. Everyone in our church, from the simplest people to those attending seminary, became familiar with the church fathers because he made them understandable. 
In those early days, at the beginning of my attendance at that church, I became familiar with the names of such church fathers as St. Ephraim the Syrian, St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Jerome, St. Clements of Alexandria, St. Hilary of Poitiers, and St. John Chrysostom. As the years have passed, and as I have read many of their writings directly, I realize that his way of thinking in general resembled theirs, especially St. Ephraim the Syrian and St. John Chrysostom. But as I reflect on all these comments on my website, I realize it is part of pastoral care and ministry to be able to communicate the writings of the early church as exemplified in the church fathers. This answers the concern of the third commenter who asked me to use my blog to make it easier for people to understand because the average person will not go to theological school or read on their own. To her, I say that an effective pastoral ministry can communicate the fathers and the treasures of spirituality contained there to the entire congregation and not only to those in theological school or even those who read on their own. Since I started attending that church and reading the writings of the church fathers, I've come into contact with other priests, including one who is very popular with young adults and who is very fresh in his style of speaking, who clearly shows the mind of the early church in the content of his preaching and in his pastoral care and guiding others on how to see the world and how to live our lives as Christians. The issue with all the concerns mentioned earlier are not the nature of the writings of the early church, but the pastoral ministries of the churches. Now I must stop here and acknowledge that there are many churches out there who have priests who have worked tirelessly and done a magnificent job in communicating the writings of the early church. I will mention several who have departed to be with our Lord. Father Beshoi Kamel of Alexandria, Father Matthew the Poor of St. Macarius Monastery, Father Antonios Henin of Los Angeles, and Father Matthias Wahba who served in the Bay Area. Then there are countless others who are still with us, both young and old, who do so in their ministries. So we have concluded that we cannot call the writings of the early church outdated. But do these writings have any other value? There are many values that these writings have. First is spirituality. Spirituality is the same in all ages. A heart-seeking God looks similar, regardless of the time, place, or culture. The difference is in the minute details. What you'll find in the Church Fathers is that they focus on what's truly important. They see everything in terms of the interaction between God and humanity. They also model how to be introspective. Altogether, they provide the experience of the ages, which is the accumulated work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Church. Further, that spirituality exists in close proximity to the time of the Apostles. For the most part, the context of the Apostles is the same as the earliest Church Fathers. Also, Many of the fathers who are called the Apostolic Fathers, which are the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament was written, were the personal disciples of the Apostles. St. Clement of Rome, for example, was the disciple of St. Paul the Apostle. St. Ignatius of Antioch was the disciple of St. John the Apostle. St. Polycarp of Smyrna was also the disciple of St. John the Apostle. All these left writings that we still have today, and even in recent English translations, 
This proximity and discipleship to the apostles makes their teachings much more compelling than, let's say, a 19-year-old pastor who converted three years ago and teaches the youth in a megachurch. Further, the three fathers that I just mentioned all died as martyrs. To focus on one of them, St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote all of his seven epistles on his way to his martyrdom, which was several weeks away. Think about the authenticity of his character. Think about the insights of a Christian who knows he is about to die for Christ. These insights would show you the very heart of the earliest Christians. Think also about the sincerity. These writings were not written to try to achieve a bestseller status. Indeed, books weren't even sold in bookstores in the ancient world, but were copied at request. These writings came from the heart, for the hearts of others following our Lord Jesus Christ. This sincerity, plus the discipleship to the apostles, equals correctness of faith, both in knowledge as well as action. As you can see, not only do these writings edify us spiritually, but the lives of the writers also inspire us and give us models, while varied, that show us until today what a life lived following Christ can look like. The second value we find in them is that they are inspirational. Imagine this. You have an intellectual who was raised by a simple Christian mother in a town full of very simple Christians who were for the most part unlearned. As this man went to college, he doubted his faith and left it for another religion. Then he met a very nice girl, whom he took as his girlfriend, and she bore him a son, and they lived together for nearly sixteen years like this. Then, in the midst of all this seeking meaning, he just left religion altogether, and became to the point where he doubted whether he could ever discover that meaning. Then he became a teacher, professor, and went broke. Then imagine one day that he hears of a bishop pastor who has a very good reputation for being very well learned. In the midst of his being broke and lacking business, he decides to take his girlfriend and his son and attends this bishop's church service. He is moved by this man's sermon, which showed his level of learning. Then after the service, he goes up to him, and having realized that unlike the Christians in his hometown, he could probably ask this man serious questions about the faith and express his concerns. So he brought up some questions from the Bible that were very troubling for him back in his college days and early adulthood. They were about the first three chapters of Genesis and the nature of God and whether he resembled human beings in their shape and appearance. And he found the bishop lightly laughing, not in a mocking way, but in a gentle way. And the bishop explained to him that these were metaphorical expressions to try to make the reality of God graspable to us humans. The bishop did not gasp nor judge this teacher-professor for coming in with a mistress and their child born out of wedlock. Nor did he scoff at the questions posed by him, but he answered him in a learned manner that showed one can be both thoughtful and religious at the same time. The result was the beginning of the conversion of this young man to Christ, who then went on to become the greatest of all the Latin-speaking church fathers in terms of the spiritual and intellectual level of his writings and also in their number. That young man was St. Augustine of Hippo. The bishop was St. Ambrose of Milan.
The actions of St. Ambrose give us a model of how to be effective pastors, and how that one person, whom many of us might disdain at first, when properly attended to, can become one of the greatest towers and supports of the Christian Church. Indeed, when his writings are carefully read, you will realize that their insights are applicable to the concerns of modern doubters and thinkers. The examples of the early Christians can also show us how to build close friendships. Imagine a rich young woman who was pastored by a bishop and who grew up to serve the church by providing for the most poor and destitute of the church. When she was getting married, she invites this bishop to come attend, and on her wedding day, her bishop could not make it due to illness. So he wrote her and sent her a poem instead. Think about how much heart was put into that. That gift is also one that is priceless. How many of us have thought of doing such things? Well, our imaginations can be expanded by approaching the writings of the early church. As you can tell, this is no synexarium or Sunday school lesson. Those are very simplistic versions of the treasures of our faith, and unfortunately in the case of synexaria, it can lead to a wrong impression of what it means to be a saint, which is nothing other than a sinner being transformed into the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we approach the writings of the early church, these early Christians will show us how to love, live, and think. The thing about them, too, is that they will not only show us how to love, live, and think, but they will do it with style and with beauty. To give an example, St. Ephraim the Syrian is the most imaginative of all the church fathers. He wrote mostly in verse, whether hymns or metered sermons, which are called memra. He uses imagery and metaphors to explore the Bible, and he uses these as vehicles that carry us to Christ. An example from his Hymns on Paradise, hymn number 12, section 8. He says, Look at Legion, when in anguish he begged. Our Lord permitted and allowed him to enter the herd. Respite did he ask for, without deception. In his anguish, and our Lord in his kindness, granted this request. His vision is so focused on the person of our Lord that he sees something about our Lord Jesus Christ that we may not readily see in this event, which is described in the Gospel, which is that he answered the prayer of the demons. It forces us to realize that if he has done so with demons, how much more will his kindness be toward us? How much more will he hear and grant our prayers how much more will our confidence be when we pray? This is what it means to apply the gospel into our lives. Another example is St. John Chrysostom, who received the title Chrysostom, which means golden mouth in Greek, due to not only the contents and power of what he preached, but also because of the style in which he delivered that content. He used so many figures of speech and rhetorical and poetic devices that his sermons are art and language. Here are some examples. On the Apostle Paul, he says, And what did St. Paul surpass the rest of the apostles? And how does it come about that through the whole world he is much on everyone's lips? How is it that not merely among ourselves, but among Jews and Greeks too, 
he is admired beyond all men. Is it not because of the excellence of his epistles? By this he has helped and will help, and as long as the human race remains, will never stop helping the faithful, not only of his own time, but from that day to this, and those who shall believe until the coming of Christ. For his writings fortify the churches all over the world, like a wall of steel. Even now he stands among us like some noble champion, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God. All this he does by means of those wonderful epistles he has left us, so full of divine wisdom. From the book on the priesthood. Then describing the difficulties of the priesthood, he also says, More billows toss the priest's soul than the gales which trouble the sea. And making a list of difficulties involved in the priesthood is like trying to measure the ocean. I think it is for these reasons of insight expressed in artistic and beautiful language that he is the most quoted of all the church fathers. Another church father who is exemplary in his beautiful writing is St. Augustine of Hippo, who was mentioned earlier. He often wrote in metaphors. His autobiography, The Confessions, is a book that by its very nature demands to be read over and over again in order for its power to be appreciated. I can't even begin to explain the depth of Augustine's confessions. I think it would take months of intense study to fully draw out the layers of meaning from this book, possibly even years. But do not let that discourage you from approaching this book. Rather, it should encourage you to reread it, maybe every year. As an example of the style and beauty of this book, when St. Augustine recounts his fall that would take him away from Christ for years, he describes an incident that takes place in a field, in a garden that is, with a tree of bad pears. He and his friends go at night to pick the fruit, which was not even desirable to look at, much less eat. And after they run with them, they don't even eat them, but throw them to the pigs, who only ate some of them. He reflects that he did not do this for the fruit, but for the evil itself, the evil of stealing. If you notice the imagery, it is a resting. It is like a garden, like Eden. It is at night, symbolizing the darkness of sin, and that is where he begins his fall. Also, the ideas, the introspection, and the way he says things is beyond what most of us could put to words. In a passage in the first book, what we would think of as chapters, he puts forward his own thoughts interleaved with so many words taken from the Psalms, saying, Who will enable me to find rest in you? Who will grant me that you come into my heart and intoxicate it, so that I forget my evils and embrace my one and only good, yourself? What are you to me? Have mercy so that I may find words. What am I to you that you command me to love you, and that if I fail to love you, you are angry with me and threaten me with vast miseries? If I do not love you, is that but a little misery? What a wretch I am! 
In your mercies, Lord God, tell me what you are to me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Speak to me so that I may hear. See the ears of my heart are before you, Lord. Open them and say to my soul, I am your salvation. After that utterance, I will run and lay hold on you. Do not hide your face from me, lest I die. Let me die, so that I may see it. The house of my soul is too small for you to come to it. May it be enlarged by you. It is in ruins. Restore it. In your eyes it has offensive features. I admit it. I know it. But who will clean it up? Or to whom shall I cry other than you? Cleanse me from my secret faults, Lord, and spare your servant from sins to which I am tempted by others. I believe, and therefore I speak. Lord, you know. Have I not openly accused myself of my faults, my God? And you forgave the iniquity of my heart. I do not contend with you in a court of law, for you are the truth. I do not deceive myself, lest my iniquity lie to itself. Therefore I do not contend with you like a litigant, because if you take note of iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? Nevertheless, allow me to speak before your mercy, though I am but dust and ashes. Allow me to speak, for I am addressing your mercy, not a man who would laugh at me. Perhaps even you deride me, but you will turn and have mercy on me. From Book 1, Sections 5-6 through six. This is none other than a mind which has been formed by the Psalms. It is a mind that has come to approach God regularly in prayer. Later in the book he speaks, he prays, to God in his characteristic style of metaphors, saying, Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. The lovely things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Book 10, Section 25 To highlight the depth of this passage, when I was preparing this episode, I passed this passage by a gentleman who has read the Bible, but has not really read the Father's. He started reading this passage out loud, and he stopped even before the end of the first sentence, because of its depth and beauty. He expressed awe. Then he kept stopping and reflecting on each sentence in the same way full of awe. The confessions can form the basis for a podcast on its own. But to get its message, it shows us how we can turn reflection upon our entire lives and our life with God into prayer and prayers that are prayed in beauty. And that can show us how to pray too. So, 
Is there value in reading the Church Fathers? Yes, there is so much value. It can be summed up in the receiving of the experience of the ages of Christians working with the Holy Spirit and living a life gazing upon and imitating Christ. What we find in them all together is the accumulated work of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to deeper spiritual lives where things will become fresh and exciting. We will be inspired along the way by the examples we see in the lives of these early Christians. And they are meant to be so for us because the Holy Spirit lived in them, forming them into the image and likeness of Christ. So we too can have varied examples of how that life looks like. We will also be inundated with all these in style and in beauty. We will also have a more concrete identity as to what it means to be a follower of Christ, which also means to be a part of his church, both with those who live with us in the present and those who have lived before us going back to the first generations of Christians, and with a mind to those who will live after us in the future and for whom we are responsible to pass down the faith as these early Christians passed down to us. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.